lovers. Hello, thank you for coming back. We had a ton of fun recording this one. Yeah, we chatted with Kai Doherty, who uses they, them pronouns. Kai is actually one of our favourite people. 100% iconic. Yeah, they, they are a queer and gender queer, queer activist from Bermuda. And did their undergrad in Montreal and then zipped over here for their postgrad, which was in Scottish gender recognition policy. And then took a two-year sabbatical, just kind of like kicking ass all over the shop, really. Yeah. And throughout their career, they've been doing a lot of difficult and important work in combating transphobia and sexual misconduct in university spaces. Hard stuff. So we had a Mm. damn good chinwag uh, about student activism, burnout, all that kind of shit in the first half. And in the second half, we got to the basics of the GRA, which is the Gender Recognition Act. Um, And we also talked about online debate. Yeah, so as always, we've got you. We'll put mm-hmm. all the links that you need for any of the information in this episode in the description. So just chill out, pal. Yeah, just, you know. just take a seat. Yeah. Strap in. And listen. Yeah. Definitely cats. I don't have enough energy to take care of another being as much as dogs require. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. Coffee or tea? Uh, Coffee. That's the correct answer. Yep, indeed. (laughs) There there are right answers here. Right. Okay. Sweet or savory? Uh, I think savory. Like, if I think of my favorite foods, they're mostly, like, roasts and kind of, like, old school. Oh, God, this is so wrong. (laughs) What about you? I'm sweet. Okay. Summer or winter? Summer, yeah. Mm. I mean, I'm from... uh, tropical island right. so winter yeah. is it was pretty the first few years yeah. but then i got over it and i like summer yeah. which obviously scotland doesn't have mm-hmm. so that's a shame we had that one day where it was sunny i don't yeah. know what you're talking about <laughs> um queer or, or lgbt plus uh for myself queer yeah okay and as a politic queer yeah. i'd say yeah yeah agree cool yeah. agreed yeah, <laughs> but that's a controversial one. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, I guess getting into the actual meat of the podcast, yes. talking about roasts. Um, what is student activism to you, and how did you get involved? So I guess I first got involved in student activism when I was like thirteen or so. Insofar mm. as I was, so Bermuda is where I'm from, very small island of sixty thousand people, so really quite a small country. And um, I got quite involved in like environmental activism there. Just, you know, things like stopping hotels that were being built on green space, like old school. I worked with actually mostly people in their fifties and sixties, so it was Aww. super cute way to kind of start. Um, but yeah, I started working with like other people who had like eco clubs at school, so very much like had a green uh, way <laughs> into activism. Uh, and then when I went to Montreal for my undergrad, and the year I arrived. Uh, the whole province was on strike. So student strikes throughout the province to oppose uh, kind of basically tuition going up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that longstanding has been quite kept low by Quebec kind of student movements. So it was really sick to like come in um, mm. to what I thought was just going to be a hectic first year anyway. <laughs> but then basically, you know, most of the colleges and the universities were shut down because students barricaded the doors and people didn't go to, to school. Yeah. Um, and the first, you know, I went on marches that had, you know, 200,000 people, which is more oh than the population of Bermuda. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of debates over what it meant to have free education or like uh, subsidized education. Yeah. So uh, it's been described as kind of being 
being like going to Hogwarts in the last book, um, <laughs> where you're the first year, you're a first year student in the last book, and you're like, what the uh, hell is going on? Yeah. So I had a trial by fire, um, and nice. yeah, so involved in student activism there, um, queer activism, a lot of work on sexual assault policies and supporting survivors of sexual assault. Um, and then over in Edinburgh, I came for my master's and then took a two-year interlude working at the Students' Association. Um, and then obviously I've been working with student leaders um, doing activism. So for me, I mean, activism is just seeking political and social change. Yeah. And then student activism are just students doing that. Mm-hmm. But I think there's something about that I find really great about student activism because it tends to be people from obviously not every walk of life, but various walks of life, different countries, different kind of experiences coming together and being, you know, unattached maybe to your family uh, for a while or just out of your normal element. And you get a chance to kind of question things that maybe you hadn't questioned before mm. and you learn from each other. Uh, you realize that you maybe have more power than you thought or you can use more of that power. Um, so I think student activism is kind of like it's a, it's a culture, yeah. to be science, <laughs> um, <laughs> where you can uh, grow like different kind of ideas. Yeah. And um, so I think it's a great locus for some of the, a lot of the stuff you see change 30 years down the road. You know, people are talking about in universities yeah, yeah. and colleges and students. You know, right before then. So, do you think that um, the, like in in student spaces, in student activist spaces specifically, when we like talk about quite hot topics, I guess. Mm. Like I remember quite a while ago, there was a student union. I can't remember which one it was that started using the word "women" with an X. Mm. Um, and the newspapers, like especially the Daily Mail, because the kind of person that my mum is is just she reads the Daily Mail. <laughs> um, had like blew up about this, mm. and we're really like, you know, this is awful. And but actually, there are lots of conversations that we have as students that are very progressive and that can yeah. be really challenging <clears throat> that maybe aren't accessible to like the Gen Pop, like if you like, like the everyday Joe who's like yeah. buying the Sun. And, stuff and like that. to be fair, a lot of the time universities, I think, tend to be like elite spaces of a, a sort because mm. um, obviously this is like a space for education. So um, even the vocabulary we use around mm. things and the things that we read and even mm. the reading level of the things that we read mm. is not very accessible to, to other people. Mm. Um, so I think that can be like a downside, I guess, of student activism. I don't yeah, know for sure. Agree. I mean, I think it's I think it's like chicken egg. I hate the kind of supremacy sometimes that student activists can have being like we started every social movement yeah. and every new idea um and that like the general population can't understand this and depending if you're a marxist or not you have very different views on what say mm. like people who are working class and often don't have as much access to this like university you know do start a lot of of the movements that we mm. follow and and that we work on so it's a bit chicken egg i don't think students universities colleges whatever start the ideas but they can be you know kind of privileged but also freeing spaces for people to bring that a bit further and to kind of Mm. study the things that are happening outside of universities but also things outside of universities can reflect Mm. it so I do think yeah a lot of things that the places like yeah Daily Mail and all of the kind of trashy newspapers love Mm. to focus on student unions here it's also I think because they know that people are going to fear some of the stuff we come up with because it does lead to social change and it does start conversations do you think that student politics naturally leans more towards liberation? Because we're, we're not just thinking what's the issue, thinking what's the issue, but why? What's in the way? What's creating it? I mean, student politics or student activism, it's, it's broad because there's obviously right-wing, mm. left-wing, centrist, liberal, radical, whatever, different kind of segments. So universities, I don't think, are inherently 
radical spaces, especially somewhere like University of Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, things like neoliberalism were born out of kind of academic and university-like settings, and that hasn't gone so well. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so it's not, I don't think, you know, inherently student politics is always going to, or student activism is always going to be, like, progressive and good. But I think people who engage with things like the National Union of Students, which is obviously mm. this national level student body, um, people who are sabbatical officers and have like the more formal politics kind of roles tend to be more centrist, leftist. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting. Your point of like, is it more like liberation or equality? I think you're kind of pointing to, is it more getting at rooted systems of oppression versus this kind of surface level liberal let's just have Mm -hmm. rights and we're fine kind of equality Mm -hmm. so i mean i think that is a big split in student politics Mm -hmm. of like do we just need more representation do we just need more policies and rules um do we just need more bursaries um Mm. or is it about fundamentally like uprooting the elitism the racism the sexism all of the isms that universities are built off of quite literally we have to rip that all up and start again. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think it is. there is a split. I'm definitely kind of more on the liberation side of mm. politics. And I've definitely worked with people who maybe have different views um, than that, which is fine. You know, it's good and interesting to have a uh, mm. representation of what the broader student body might also be feeling. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, we're, we're, we're talking about, like, students, but especially student spaces that um, are so big like in, in Montreal and you talk about how many people are involved and how, like, charged it is. Mm. Do you feel that um, within student politics you've had like experience with a lot of burnout? And when you talk about burnout, like what that what does that mean to you? And people use that that phrase a lot online. What do you think burnout is in your in your opinion? Well, I think burnout means different things for different people. I think it is just this kind of like I can't do anymore. I'm done at my capacity. And so for some people that's like I'm exhausted and I need to just take a break. For some people that's like I'm on sick leave and I actually need to stop work or school. And I definitely like been both of those at different points. Um, I, I don't have great solutions in that sense mm-hmm. <laughs> because I worked really, uh, and I was so involved in so many different uh, student organizing kind of collectives, um, both here and in, in Edinburgh, uh, here and in Montreal. Um, and then also kind of doing activism in Bermuda from afar. So it's just because it gives me so much energy and passion and it's something I love. I'm happy to give half of my soul to it, but I only have so much soul. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I've been sick for the last six weeks trying to finish my master's dissertation with a cold while also being quite ill. And I think it's because I have been, I think, working really hard for the last two years um, doing student activism work um, and getting paid for it, which is great. And that's actually, I think, a great remedy for burnout is when it's actually yeah. your job. It does help. Um but I think my body just kind of was collapsed as soon as I finished the, mm. the job because I knew it always knows when it can. I don't know yeah. if you have this after finals or after kind of a big period. My body does, um, to be fair, like I'm, I have no disabilities, so it's very much a different kind of like area. But I find my body stays together until like it's slightly allowed to fall apart and then it completely does. So, yeah. you know, after I finished second year in my undergrad, after I finished my undergrad, um, as I said just now, at different points I've had burnout for sure. Mm-hmm. Um I guess, how do you guys understand burnout? I mean, I'm definitely the same way. I also have no physical disabilities that, like, you know, actually uh, prevent me from from doing certain things, I guess, except for just that tiredness and that exhaustion, Mm -hmm. which I I can tell that, you know, it affects how I uh, interact with people. It affects uh, just, like, my energy levels on a daily basis and just how how much I'm able to actually go out and, like, enjoy my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And also my mental well-being and my mental health in general. Um, so I, I think when I, when I noticed that kind of like decrease in my general kind of well-being, that is how I know that I've like burnt out mm-hmm. and that I really need to rest. 
Um, I think what I find really, really difficult is actually allowing myself to take that rest and actually, you know, being compassionate with myself and actually saying no to things. How, how do you, how do you manage that? Like, yeah, I mean, I think because I have recognized my propensity to overwork myself, I've tried to work on saying no and to finding other ways of like not burning out. So there are a few thoughts I have. One is a lot of the kind of projects, if you will, the revolutions, the structural change, however you understand it, that I have aren't going to ever happen by me or in the next year <laughs> um, mm-hmm. or in the place I am, right? They're usually global systems. They're things that require large collective action. Um, so I think I need to like it's been useful to remind myself that I, as much as I can make a change, mm. I'm not the change. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And me, so I'm not, like, I don't need to have the weight of the world on my shoulders is essentially yeah. what that comes down to. Um, but part of that is, like, if I actually want to be useful in the movements I want to be useful for, I'm not useful if I'm, like, completely burnt out yeah. and exhausted. So actually it's helping myself and helping other people by pacing myself. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think I feel a lot of duty and a lot of, like, g- guilt but also uh, you know interest and passion for making change but actually I can't do that if I'm dead <laughs> if I'm yeah. exhausted and stuck in bed mm-hmm. um so I think mm-hmm. that's one thing is kind of not having the world on your shoulders the other is having mini wins like we literally at work had a board that had mm-hmm. mini wins on it and it, sometimes it would be like we survived this conference or I wrote this paper or I you know spoke strongly in this meeting or yeah. um I organized with these students so you remember that you can't get your end goal of like ending patriarchy, yeah. but uh, maybe this week you chipped away in this way and actually yeah. letting yourself like celebrate uh, is super important. Yeah. Um, and in terms of saying no, I actually at some point had to start making a list mm-hmm. of every time I said no to something. And if mm-hmm. it was less than like say three in a week, yeah. then I was doing, I wasn't doing well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think like actually there's catharsis in writing down. I said no to this and this is like a win yeah. by writing that. You that's, know? that's interesting that you said that. Uh, thinking of you know thinking of the system as this larger thing big bigger than you yeah. uh, kind of gave you comfort whereas I feel like for me so far it's been kind of like this overwhelming mm. thought that oh my gosh it's like this systemic thing and I cannot possibly take a break because I can't possibly just like sit down and let other people wait for their liberation as I like take a rest or whatever mm. but I think a lot of the time it is just about like changing how you look at it and looking at, way, at it the way you're looking at it is definitely much more health- healthy much healthier and just much more reasonable, you know, because like it's true. Like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna end patriarchy or end racism, whatever. Just you know, like by being seen, here. Have you seen like the um the there's like an Instagram post I think it was that was like just because you can doesn't mean that you should. Yeah. And that's been like a big thing for me. I think to tell myself like recently, it's just been like you know just because you can do something. I'm a big like I'm a big one to have like a breakdown and then be like, but I'll get I'll get up and do the thing anyway. I'll be like I'll yeah. say to like my flatmate or like my best friend or I'll like text my girlfriend and be like, I can't, I can't fucking do it. Like, I just can't do it. And, and then like it. 30 minutes later, she's like, where you, where you gone? I'm like, I've gone to do that thing. Like, I do. <laughs> but like, and it's, it's hard. Like you, you feel like you can't do something, but then you, you know that like physically or mentally you have the capacity to do it if you really put yourself in like quite a lot of stress and danger. And that's something that I will do anyway. Yeah. And that's bad like yeah. looking at me like oh no <laughs> no I mean I feel that entirely, yeah definitely. It's, it's something I think like saying no is hard especially like you talk about setting boundaries and like learning to say no mm. it's a process of doing that and I've definitely had times as well where like I've set boundaries and it's just not been respected and I know as well that like, I'm not good at setting boundaries and I think that when you're a student it's doubly hard because like you're your work is being a student, but then your life is also being a student. Yeah. And the people that you're, like, 
doing all this work and this activism with are also kind of the people that you're like friends with mm-hmm. and the people that you're dating and the people that you see all the time in class mm-hmm. and they're professors you never really get away so it, as well as being a systemic issue it's also like an issue in your life and your mind and mm-hmm. it kind of gets tricky because you are doing emotional labor yeah. <laughs> in some form you are kind of like even if you're not physically there in an office doing an hour on a clock you're there emotionally in your mind, mentally thinking mm-hmm. over it all. Yeah. And that, like, for me, burnout really comes around when I don't recognise when I'm doing work. Mm-hmm. And I don't ever really switch off and stop working. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's one thing is setting boundaries, which is, mm. is generally hard to set boundaries to figure out what they mm. are, but the hardest part is keeping them. Mm. Uh, and obviously people can push them, and there's, I'm not saying it's totally your fault if they get pushed, but I think what I've had to learn is also to be firmer and I think what stopped me is I didn't want to hurt people's feelings or fail the revolution (laughs) or like be a bad ally and it's like you can't put that pressure on yourself because you're just going to burn out and like I've seen so many people who are so involved in these movements and then now they're completely disengaged because they were Mm. so in it for the like first four years of school university and then they left and did whatever job and then we're like I can't anymore because the pressure we put on ourselves to know everything to speak in the right way to always act in the most socially and politically conscious way and to spend any extra money and time and and emotions on furthering the cause um, or causes is great and it's it's noble but it's not sustainable Um, and if you actually want to for yourself and for your communities you need to actually like survive and continue Mm -hmm. and to grow so um, I think there's something about making yourself take breaks and like Mm -hmm. that's what I you know there's a lot of great things about having getting paid as a sabbatical officer in a way that I did volunteer work for 10 years and then finally got paid for it. But another great thing is annual leave where you literally have a certain number of days where you put in the vacation. Whereas mm-hmm. when you're a student, you don't really have that. You're mm-hmm. like, it's semester one, it's semester two, and then it's working over the summer, <laughs> at least, yeah. you know? Um, so I think sometimes making yourself be like, uh, you know, the third week of February, I'm not going to any meetings or I'm not going to go on Twitter or, you know, yeah. and you just make yourself take a week off every two months. Mm-hmm. Like it's a holiday. Yeah. I you think know? it's also important to prioritize what you are going to do as, yeah. as a student activist. And obviously there are certain things that are potentially more important that you need to plan for, um, that you don't want to burn out for mm-hmm. because, you know, obviously there's, there's so much that we can do, but there are certain things that perhaps we should do if we want to be a good ally yes you need to ask yourself do i need to do this especially Mm -hmm. if you're someone so the answer could be yes for so many reasons of like Mm -hmm. you're privileged in this case so that's actually a lot easier for you to do it Mm -hmm. or it could be like i'm best placed because i have personal connections to the people who need to change their mind Mm or i'm best placed because i'm better at giving speeches or writing or whatever like we all have different skills and accesses and privileges that actually can make us better suited for a job so just because you could do it doesn't mean you can that's interesting how um how you're bringing kind of like identity into it so like uh, you know, the privileges you have and the privileges that you don't have and how that kind of plays into your decision of whether you should act and and, mm-hmm. um, and so on. So how, how would you say your identity plays into uh, the decisions, I guess, you make and then, like, your activism? Yeah, I think it's it's integral. I mean, I guess I come from aware of a, like, queer politics point of view, which is less based on identity and more based on experiences and, and what counts as normal and normative. Um, I won't get too deep into that, but essentially... You know, the way in which the world has seen me, um, whether that be in terms of privileges of being white, um, of being English speaking, of being of the class I am, going to private school, those kinds of things, or the like less great things like being visibly queer when I was in a very homophobic country, Bermuda is like notoriously very homophobic, at least, you know, in terms of social attitudes and um, and law, less in terms of like person interpersonal violence. But um, yeah, I think 
I think subconsciously I was involved in activism as, at a young age because it was the first time in my life I felt I had control over um, something by just shouting a lot and having a different opinion. So like we were able to stop the government from building uh, on this piece of land by, you know, using a bit of policy, a bit of like direct mm. action, a bit of like networking. It was like really cool to see and yeah. like to get my fellow students to sign up petitions at the age of 13. Um, and so that was like, you know, benign <laughs> versions of, of self-empowerment essentially. Yeah. Um, but I think going to, to Montreal where I could really see that being queer was not just a bad thing I would deal with, but actually a power to be able to see the world differently um, and to be able to question yeah. everything that was normative and normal um, mm. and actually apply it to everything uh, in the world. And also it gave me access to learning a lot about the privileges yeah. I did have and the ways I needed to question, you know, the racism in Bermuda that hadn't really been questioned before um, in the worlds that I am in in Bermuda and classism, things like that, student politics, like just opened up a world for, for me. I love this idea of like you and your identity as an activist at like thirteen. Yeah, what, I mean, it what was, made you do that? Like, was it your parents at all? Or? It was an awesome teacher, as it often oh. is. Um, yeah. So the one cool teacher, um, wow, she <laughs> she actually was from Montreal originally. Um, she was the guidance counselor, and she ran this program that kind of helped um, bring students across the world together. Um, or she didn't run it; she was part of it. It's called Round Square, and it was like bringing all these students probably pretty neocolonial in, in mm. uh, retrospect, but basically bringing together students from across the world to talk about things that weren't just academic. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of pros and cons over the program, but it was cool that she had connections. She saw that I was, like, wanting to make change, which, once again, in retrospect, was probably me just being really angsty about being in a homophobic place and being like, maybe I'm gay and that sucks and I'm really depressed. So did you die. know when you were when you were that age, like, did you, did I guess people say, like, did you know, do you think that you had a, an understanding that you were, that you were gay or that you were queer? I think I came out to myself as queer when I was like 15 and it was also oh. through the internet. Mm. And unfortunately, RIP, because it's now turfy, afteröllen.com, mm. uh, used to be so good because I had these little videos so that I would things watch. are turfy now. Like, yeah. I feel like I actually like, I'll, like, find a cool person, and I'll have to go, I need to Google them first yeah. to find out if they've said anything transphobic. And that's so fucking sad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had the L word. I also, like, you know, mm. to try and find oh, any gay movie yeah. that I could stream, and I'm yeah. a bit older than you, so it was really it's harder so to stream. <laughs> it's also, like, now, like, sometimes I, I feel like, sometimes I feel like I can't enjoy a thing because I'm constantly, like, is this problematic? Yeah. Like, well, that's the beauty of, like, early 2000s lesbian content. It was all problematic. Mm -hmm. uh, if you've ever watched The L Word, it's, like, mm -hmm. the worst. Yes, Definitely so biphobia, yeah. like, was ingrained in me from early queer age. And it took me a yeah. while to be like, oh, that show was questionable. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so I feel like I came up to myself as, at 15, and I had a girlfriend in my last two years at high school, an all-girls school. I was not very happy about that. Mm. Um, and then got involved in activism with Rita. Um, so, yeah, I've been... But I, I use activism as a super broad term. Like, yeah. I was literally, like... This 13-year-old kid with a, in a room full of, like, old hippies uh, talking about how we were going to hold signs by the side of the street to stop this development. You know, yeah. it was cute. But yeah. it worked. Yeah, it worked. It worked. <laughs> I want to, I wonder if you could touch into it, if there's anything that you want to say about the pronoun violence and what went on. During uh, Frasher's week and, and sort of Arrival's week, Yusa and mainly Pushful by you, is that fair to say? Yeah. yeah. Um, kind of brought out some pronoun badges that students could choose to take if they wanted to um, to show like the correct pronouns that were the ones that they identified with. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a massive national media backlash, basically, um, and social media backlash, right? Um, really international. Yeah. Was, that, was yeah. that like an example of burnout for you? Did you burn out, like to be honest? Uh, you know, I think because... Unfortunately, I've been involved in a few other media shitstorms. Mm -hmm. I was able to just like 
relatively disengaged. And I also, mm-hmm. like, that week, we at sabbatical office were doing so much that I didn't even have too much time I could spend on it. But to be fair, I woke up on the Sunday morning. I tweeted from work on, like, the Wednesday. I got, like, three likes. So I don't know how the telegraph or whoever found it. Um, <laughs> woke up on Sunday to, to the article being out, and then it was, like, spreading like wildfire. And, yeah, I, you know, I... Luckily, I think realized media is trash, and I've always been warned that this is going to happen. So I didn't, I didn't burn out because it was like the first week of semester as yeah. well. But uh, I definitely, it, it was a knock. I mean, it was yeah. annoying because it's so basic, and I'm like, there's yeah. so many controversial opinions I have, and this is not one. Like, this yeah. is not controversial. Um, why are we debating other things that matter? I just couldn't understand it. Yeah, like, there was I was no like, controversy. I also people people that weren't even at the university were like saying all these things. Every, yeah, they were all. And there. I was like. This, this literally isn't applicable to you. Yeah. Like, you're from, I like, you go on people's, like, profiles and they're from, like, Auckland. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you're literally on the other side yeah. of the earth and you think that this, this bad thing is Auckland, New Zealand. Oh, no, no, no. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I, was, I was just like, I can't understand why well, this it. is an it, issue to you. It's like a, gl- it's a global news kind of trend. They'll pick up on any snowflakey type thing and then they'll spread it and I think, yeah, we just can't bother to give them time of day because the yeah. next day they'll have a new article that's like, someone wants an abortion or, you know, like, sex <laughs> workers exist. And it's like, I'm happy to be along with those people because it's all yeah. reasonable <laughs> opinions and yeah. activities. Um, so, yeah, it was annoying. Um, but And actually, in some ways, what what's perverse about, you know, the whole press thing is the whole, you know, more all press is good press is kind of not true not for the true. most yeah, part, yeah. but for this, yeah. because it was such a hullabaloo, more people found out about it. We ran out in the first few days. And if yeah. it hadn't been for the press attention, I think people wouldn't have known about it. Yeah. It started a conversation. So looking on the positive side of it all, it did it did help people know about them so that when people were walking around with badges, they actually yeah. knew what that meant. It meant more people yeah. knew to find them. Um, you know, it was annoying when like the tab did a, a, a poll on whether it was tab, okay. The tab, and I would go on record. <laughs> needs to sort their shit out. <laughs> and I was like, like this is an opinion I, we need to have. So mm. there was, you know, there was some, a lot of irresponsible journalism on yeah, people that, yeah. besides the students. I, I think, I think as well though, like it was tough because like with all these kinds of things, you have to balance the idea of, of press and of getting it, like not attention for these issues, but, but of, you have to balance the idea of press and raising awareness and celebrating something that could be good with the potential backlash that there yeah. could be because that's the way that the internet works. Mm-hmm. And, like, you can have a really good thing happen, but you can have an awful backlash. Or you can even have a good thing happen, but the way that it's reported can be very triggering for people or could bring up a lot of things that are really difficult. And it's whether you're happy with that trade-off. I don't think that's a decision that, like, anyone ever feels particularly comfortable making. Yeah, Yeah, it's always... I mean, the more people who know about something means the more people are going to be sucky about it, (laughs) is the technical term. So, like, the more people you reach, the more haters you're going to get. Like, the more enemies, the more right-wing, the more whoever, like, disagrees with you is going to voice their opinion. So that's always the downside. But also, if you only ever you know, post in uh, of media, social media, or posters, whatever, to the same people, then you're not spreading your message either, yeah. and there could be queer and trans people in those other areas that don't know you. So, yeah, it is a balance. I think, in this case, I had no control. I was ex- mm. exposed. I just tweeted. <laughs> like, it was really one of my least controversial tweets, um, but they just literally hound student union kind of Twitters to be like, oh, it's a slow Sunday. What can, what can we find? Bastards. <laughs> um, so, you know, that sucked. And it would suck for obviously all the trans people having to read that. Yeah. And myself included and being like, these people suck. But we, for the most part, we already know people suck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that people have weird opinions um, and trash opinions about pronouns. Um, so, yeah, it was, I think it, it turned out okay. And, you know, good mm-hmm. debates um, or conversations. But uh, yeah. I would not do it again. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we will touch on debates in the second part. And now it is time for a break. 
queer confessions. So actually, what what happened? I when I I lived with my dad like um throughout sick form and stuff, and um, I like bought probably my first vibrator I think like good one and um I was just like so engrossed in the fact that I now had it that I was Mm. using it all the time every single second that I got an opportunity to just like yeah I was I was just I was just doing yeah perfect doing what I I needed and um like I support it mm, and it was waterproof right so I would like take it into the shower with me sometimes and one morning I like had a shower used it in the shower and like got out the shower brushed my teeth put my vibrator down on like the side a wipe clean side I'm not unsanitary and um god didn't come for me uh and like then just like kind of forgot about it and like fucked off and like went and got dressed and stuff and my dad like heard my dad go in the bathroom and I was like sat on my bed like fuck it's in there do you know what I mean also it's bright pink it's not like it's like oh yeah inconspicuous like it's very clear but no he did because he addressed it this is what happened so he like he he was he was in the bathroom and like i was like i was sat on my bed like listening like oh god like please don't see it but then also knowing that it was like completely inevitable and then he like kind of came out the bathroom and i just heard him like really softly go like rosie and i was like fuck i was like if he says anything like (laughs) i don't know what to say what i do so i was just sat on like the other side of my door just kind of going yeah (laughs) what is what is it and he's what like, is it, Daddy? <laughs> yeah, God, <laughs> I'm so sorry, Dad. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and he was like, uh, I, uh, I think you've, uh, you've, you've. My dad doesn't actually talk like this. He's, he's <laughs> sounds, a uh, sounds man. normal. Yeah, he's a man. But he's like, I think you've, uh, I think you've left something in the in the bathroom, Rosie Posey, which is what he calls me. And I was just like, I was there, like inside my door, being like, fuck, fuck, I'm such a fucking idiot. Like, fuck it, <laughs> fuck it all. He knows, fuck. And like, she has a vagina. <laughs> oh my god, she has genitals. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, like I'll never live this down. And then, but like to be fair, I just went in, got it. Like he didn't say anything about it ever again. True ally, my dad. Yeah. True ally. Yeah, he's like supporter. Yeah, yeah. Of I think Rosie so. Posey. I was Rosie Posey. I mean, like I think we're pretty like open about stuff anyway. Yeah. Like we just kind of like not, you know, we don't talk about like sex and yeah. stuff. But, advice. Yeah, but like he's he's aware that like you that know I am active. a sexual being because yeah. we all are yeah. philosophically. Yeah. Apart from if you don't want to be, which is totally fair. Yeah. So part two, I think that a great thing to talk about is the GRA and the reform that's currently has been going on, and then went through Parliament, Scottish Parliament, a couple of weeks ago now, um, to say that we would be not reforming. Delay. Yeah. Delay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Can you explain for a layman mm. what the GRA is? Think yep. of your average, your average, I want to use like a, a gender neutral name, your average Joe, J-O. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, would they, what would they need to know about the GRA? So the name probably is useful. So GRA stands for Gender Recognition Act. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been around since 2004. Um, it basically is the process by which someone can change their gender on their birth certificate. So if you have a birth certificate in the UK, then you can change it by following the evidence requirements of the GRA uh, to get a gender recognition recognition certificate. So you change your birth certificate, birth gender, um, like gender marking with that, and also your legal gender. So if it had an F and you change it to an M, then you're, you get a new birth certificate that says M, and for all, um, or most purposes anyway, you are considered to be that gender. 
I mean, that's uh, so it's been around for a while because the European Court of Human Rights actually made the UK uh, get a, a law to actually make it possible to legally change your gender. Because before mm-hmm. then, for about the 30 years or so before, legally people couldn't change their gender. Um, so you'd always be whatever you were assigned at birth. Um, yeah, so can, we, can we like yeah pop pop in there a fab and a mab because when I first came to university, I didn't I didn't know what people were talking about when yeah. they were saying that. Okay. So if you'd like to explain a fab, yeah. AMAP. So when you're born, um, doctors t- or midwives or whatever you have tend to look at your external genitalia and determine whether you are male or female based on whether you have a penis or a vagina. Essentially, if you don't, then often corrective surgery is um, kind of used. So on people who tend to be referred to as intersex people, but we won't talk about that so much today. Um, but most people are given uh, an F or an M, uh, said they're male or they're female. So you're assigned that, i.e. your doctor or midwife has assigned you, okay, based on this, you're male, or based on this, you're female. So that's what AFAB stands for, assigned female at birth, or AMAB is assigned male at birth. Mm-hmm. So everyone, at least in the UK, is assigned either female or male at birth, and then the GRA, the Gender Recognition Act, is the law that was passed to make it possible to actually change what that marker says. Um, so right now, the evidence that you need for that is you have to be over 18, you have to prove that you have lived in your acquired gender for two years, um, and you also need to be diagnosed by a professional uh, with gender dysphoria. So you actually need a medical diagnosis, uh, usually through a gender identity clinic, of which there are very few, and of which yeah. usually the waiting line is, you know, a year and a half, two years um, or so. Um, so that's the current, yeah, so that's the current kind of act, and that's been around since 2004. In the last couple of years, um, activists have been trying to change it, um, and so that's what the current kind of debate has been about. Um, In the last general election in Scotland, all of the political parties agreed that they would reform it. Um, The basic tenets of reform are wanting to make it so people under the age of 18 can find a way to change that marker. Um, That includes, like, that, like, legally recognized will also be non-binary people, so it won't just be male or female. You'd actually have, like, a third kind of gender option. Um, and also they wanted to take away, or we want to take away the medical diagnosis and two-year living test part, uh, because even in international kind of medical diagnostic manuals, things like that, it's actually, like, gender identity disorder no longer is a real disorder. Um, so it's no longer a pathology, it's no longer a bad thing, um, so there's no reason that it needs to have a medical element at all. So you don't need Mm -hmm. to see a doctor to say you have transness anymore, um, so people say you should just be able to self-declare. So that means you can just, on a piece of paper, say, yes, I am a man. I want my birth certificate to be changed to an M. Uh, and that's that you just make a legal declaration um, to say that that will be a permanent change. Yeah. So when you say like they ask for proof that you've lived in your, uh, your in the gender that you were trying to change. Yeah. You acquire, you're acquired gender, so, but, as yeah, they so, say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's so much like terminology that yeah. becomes... So when they ask for proof that you've been living in your acquired gender, um, what kind of proof is that? So uh, I guess full disclosures, I haven't done this process. Uh-huh. Uh, my birth certificate is in Australia, which is super cute. So I have to find a whole other, uh, use a whole see, other okay. law to change my birth certificate <laughs> there. But I have changed my passport here. Um, uh-huh. And it's worth noting that passports, uh, your NHS kind of number, uh, your driver's license, a lot of other identification, you can change a lot easier. You don't need to change it mm. through this process. So I just needed my gender doctor <laughs> to write a letter saying that I would 
my my change to mail, as they they think mm-hmm. I am, um, my change to mail is permanent. It's all they just needed a letter. So actually, the GRC is and your your birth certificate isn't used for that much anymore. Um, but it still obviously is a problem um, that you probably want changed around things like determines whether you're same sex marriage marriage <laughs> married or <laughs> hetero married. You know, it has some some impacts. Um, so the process is is way more intense for getting your birth certificate changed and yeah at this mm-hmm. point of having two years proof like they ask for it's so inconsistent like you read reports and some people get admonished for giving too much information say they have a full photo album showing look here's me dressed as you think is a woman or just as you think is a man um and they have to prove and they have to get letters from their employers their friends their doctors mm-hmm. um people in their life to prove that they've been living in that gender um, and in theory, like they say that the reason is so that you, you definitely know how hard it's, gonna, I mean, they don't say it like this, but it's inferred that you need to know what the consequences are of you transitioning. Um, sure. uh, they say it's, you know, to help prepare you, but so it's why more, would you want to be more of like a, some kind of like form of fire. punishment yeah. type yeah. thing? I mean, I think it is. And that's, I think that's essentially a big reason why we want to change it is yeah. like, there's no reason why people have to do that without having legal protection or recognition so that they can be protected mm-hmm. by having you know the driver's license and birth certificates that they need to have um mm-hmm. it's kind of just a a remnant of we know better than you let's triple check and how we're going to do it is to see if you can handle living in the world as say a trans woman or a trans man as they assumed to be binary so two choices um i think it's i think it's really as, a, as a trial by fire to be like if you can't mm-hmm. handle this then we're not going to do all Almost this like change. a deterrent yeah, yeah. I mean, their logic is we need you to have not woken up today and just decided you want to be a woman and then like change your birth certificate, yeah. which is a ridiculous but prominent argument on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, so they want to prove that there's some kind of consistency to your feelings, which the yeah. gender clinics also do. Um, so my understanding is that most Scottish people in many, like at least two or three surveys that I've seen, mostly supported the GRA. Yeah. Um, and yet it's being pushed and delayed since mm-hmm. 2004. Yeah. So who are the main voices and like what are their arguments? So the reform, it? the consultation, so the government did a consultation, which means like organizations, individuals can all write in and say how they feel about the proposed changes. So they suggested these proposed changes of self-declaration. So once again, being able to say I'm a man or I'm a woman, and that's like how you change your birth certificate. Um adding a non-binary kind of category um, was also the option, um, opening up to under-18s. So they put out this consultation late 2017, uh, closed early, like, March 2018. Uh, and yeah, the overwhelming majority of people um, agreed with the proposed changes, um, with obviously understandable caveats and mm-hmm. less understandable caveats. <laughs> um, but after that, and during that, an increasing, like, increasingly loud voice of what we would term like TERFs, so trans-exclusionary radical feminists, have been organizing quite effectively, frankly. Mm. Um, so you have groups like Four Women Scott, you have groups like Women and Girls uh, in Scotland, uh, you have Four, um, well, you've got, so those are like kind of the Scotland ones, yeah. and a couple of like broader English ones. Mm. Um, so they came in and have been like, I mean, they, some of them submitted consultation responses, but since they've been holding events, they've been, uh, now focused on the census, which was a huge area of focus around this question, too, of whether people can self-declare their sex on a census. Um, census is a huge data collection exercise that the country does every 10 years, and so it's very important what that data determines, health policy determines, uh, just pl- like state planning. 
So that was another kind of proxy debate over whether trans people should be considered the gender they are or what's on mm. their birth certificate. Um, so they're growing and growing. These kind of what we would term, I would term TERFs um, are growing as a group of people who proclaim to be, uh, you know, talking about the silenced women, um, but are really just recycling old 1970s transphobic yeah. feminists. Yeah. And all of these, a lot of these women, um, and it is predominantly women, and it is predominantly, it has to be said, in my experience with all of these groups, it is predominantly white middle class, slightly mm-hmm. older women yeah. who have identified a lot of the time as lesbians. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, a lot of the, the rhetoric that they use is really on this issue of trans activism erases lesbians mm-hmm. um, and erases the fight for lesbian equality. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of this is just done on Twitter, mm-hmm. um, which seems like totally wild to me. Yep. The, like, mm-hmm. A lot of this really serious like debate is being had on Twitter and it is being put out into the world in like massive massive quantities and you get like pylons of people and people that are TERFs having these really abusive um, conversations about trans women and trans rights mm-hmm. um, do you think that all of this debate online makes it really difficult for people to form educated opinions on the GRA um, I mean you think a lot as well about like when we had Brexit going on and people were trying to make informed decisions about something that the government was asking for opinions on. Um, there was so much misinformation being spread all over the internet by people from all kinds of different places. And like, the, what will the impact of that be? Like these, these online spaces that increasingly more young people are using. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I guess the short answer is no, it's not a good way for people to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Twitter, you know, it used to be Tumblr, uh, maybe it's still Tumblr, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Facebook, you know, all these social media platforms, you usually get into your own bubble and you talk mm-hmm. to each other and then occasionally you like fight with another warring group mm-hmm. and get your comrades or whatever to <laughs> attack them as well. And it's I, it's a waste of energy and I, I don't have a public Twitter for that reason and I just don't engage um, with it online because it's a waste of energy. Um I think, you know, in any social movement, you're not trying to convince your total opposites, your opponents. You're actually just trying to educate and inform the people who are fence sitters who actually don't know what it means to be trans, don't understand why it's really important for a census to look like this or for a birth certificate to look like this, and that are willing to be open to be educated. But often online, people spend a lot of energy trying to fight, say, like Julie Bindle, um, who's mm. like a big term, and mm. she's super against like sex working, against trans people. Um, also has this kind of narrative of lesbianism being erased. Um, she also thinks that uh, gay men shouldn't be allowed to use female surrogates to have children. So that's a, yep. yeah. Yeah. I mean, she I don't also know thinks bi people don't exist. Like she's got a lot of uh, bad opinions. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Cags, you're not here. <laughs> I see you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like they're like they're saying like people are attracted to like both oh. genders. Don't exist. Um, totally wild. But yeah, essentially, uh, it's just, I don't think, worth the arguments. It's mm. You need to call people out, and so far as, like, not let it slide, but I think I like to use more of my energy in this kind of not, how not to burn out. Use more of your energy with talking to and working with people in person, if possible, but certainly people who are willing to listen. Mm. Um, I guess your earlier point about lesbian erasure being an interesting axis of kind of discussion in this. Um, so, like, I, I worked as my, like, dissertation has been looking at the kind of Scottish debates over gender recognition in the GRA, in the census debate, also the prison protocol here, which is based on self-declaration, um, and also, like, the gender reassignment protocol, so the kind of NHS medical side of all of this. Um, and so it's been really interesting to look at, I honestly spent, like, a whole week or two reading just pure turf kind of 
yes. academic work or reports or consultations. Uh, and I think it's always useful, actually, to read what your opponents are, mm-hmm. are putting out um, or to hear what their tactics are and the way mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Um, because, I mean, it's just good as, as any kind of uh, person to understand your enemy. But also it really shows you where you agree and disagree. Um, not that I agree with most tenets of turfdom, um, but uh, the radical feminist part, I do consider myself to be a radical feminist, just a trans-inclusionary one, um, is like really interesting because a lot of what they're talking about does have to do with uh, you know, questioning social uh, gender roles or questioning the roots of some of the kind of forms of misogyny. A lot of people tend to see a lot of turf rhetoric and discussion as being part of a, a movement for gender abolition mm-hmm. and getting read... Yeah of um these like really binary ideas yeah so there's some like really appealing parts of what they talk about but i think uh and you know there's like less appealing parts of some of the more liberal trans rights stuff that like i don't think actually gender recognition is the be all and end all i would love to see a situation where the government had no say in what legal gender you are Mm -hmm. and didn't assign it at all and that's not even on the table so um it's kind of interesting to hear what they say but the lesbian erasure part I mean, it's the same stuff when, so we, let's take, talk about single, like, sex spaces. So, like, yeah. women-only spaces is a huge area of debate. Mm-hmm. So you have things like rape crisis centers, mm-hmm. or you have prisons, or you have swimming pools, whatever it be. Um, that's a huge point where TERPs are like, we don't want trans women. Because mm-hmm. a lot of, obviously, a lot of their, their irk is more about hating trans women because they think trans men are just, like, dupes to the patriarchy. So they kind of ignore trans men. And then trans women are all, like, you know, these people coming in and trying to infiltrate women's spaces. That was the exact same argument that was used against lesbians going into women's spaces, but 20, 30 years ago. Um, it's the same, like, you can look at some mm-hmm. of the newspaper articles, some of the arguments, and it's the same stuff of, like, lesbians aren't real women, they can't come into our spaces, they're going to assault us, they're going to not understand where we're coming from. And that is, unfortunately, now being used by the people who were once oppressed by that narrative are now using it to oppress another group that they don't agree with. Um, mm-hmm. So almost all of the debates now have have direct roots to, you know, one of the first pieces of turf writing was Janice Raymond's The Transsexual Empire. And you can see the same kind of general notes and the same debates and the same arguments of just why trans people shouldn't exist or don't exist. Uh, you know, she's famously want, felt that trans people could be like morally argued out of existence. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all very hyper-academic, very like you know, what is social theory, um, but ultimately incredibly dangerous. Um, Mm. So it's nothing new. Um, Feminists being racist or transphobic or homophobic, that's always been a problem. But it's it's been wild to me, to be honest, being in the UK and seeing how much money, uh, how much support, how much access, mm. uh, how much anyways, platforms that TERFs have here in a way that Canada, there was... But they still argue they're being silenced, oh, which yeah, is obviously. really strange. <laughs> I wanted to come back really quickly to what we were saying about social media. Um, and, you know, on one hand, you're saying that the, the, the TERF debate or the debates that TERFs have between each other is a really academic one. But on the other, there are a lot of what they're, they're doing is on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the beginning of the podcast, in part one, we were talking about how a university space is a little, it can be elitist and it can be inaccessible, inaccessible. Um, in a way, I think that having those debates online is actually a good, so- or can be a good solution if you know how to curate your feed, essentially. And if you know that, you know, if, you, if you're educated as to how you should be using online spaces and like, you know, don't just stay in your bubble and like read other things and, and things like that mm-hmm. and I think in that way having an online debate like I think that is one of obviously yeah I don't as, as you said I don't agree with most tenants of the term but um I do 
like the idea of having a lot of the base that you have online, mm. um, which obviously can be very, uh, very negative if, mm. if all you're doing is just debating online, you're actually not doing any, mm. any other work beyond that. But I think it is such a good way of like getting to people, mm. um, especially people who don't have access to those debates on like a, in a, in a university setting yeah. or in any kind of like elite setting or whatever. So I think I really, I really agree with that point in, in some senses, but then I also think about how like this space, this online space that we created, this kind of like platform, it's really hard to filter or switch off. Whereas I think if you are going, when it comes to like debate and discourse, which is a word that people use increasingly now to describe the kinds of conversations that are being had, like you go to a space knowing that that will be there and you consent to engaging with it. Whereas online, I think that because our personal accounts are increasingly like kind of infiltrated with this kind of content it then becomes really impossible to know if you're entering that space and know when you can leave it people think that they you know people think that they expect a response from you and people think that they expect and people think that they deserve for you to engage and for you to engage in discourse with them yeah um and for you to really give an answer to a lot of questions or be held accountable to the things that they're asking of you yeah and like so i think that online activism and like i think they call like hashtag activism and stuff like that I think that a, a lot of the time can be really useful in terms of mobilizing large pe- large groups of people mm-hmm. and building critical masses behind movements. Mm-hmm. And like you said, for accessing things that might actually be held in quite like um, elitist spaces and spaces that really are prioritizing people from a certain background. Yeah. It makes it more accessible. But then I also worry that um, uh, now that a lot more young people are using online spaces to learn about their identity, that having those kinds of discussions online means that it's really hard to step away yeah when you're being abused but i wonder whether the solution to that should instead of just not having those debates online should just be education as to how to have the debates and how to um just know it like know when to say no no one to leave and just kind of uh maintain some kind of etiquette on online spaces i mean look i <clears throat> i have no judgment of people who do engage in debates turf wars if you will uh i think you know on the previous conversation of burnout i just need to decide where what i need to be doing and Mm -hmm. where my energy needs to be and where i'm most useful and i don't think that's online debate um i think i I mean the internet is a huge tool for democratizing information making accessible all of this kind of knowledge so totally don't think you know we should just take it all off the internet but i think there's a difference between debate or discourse and educating so the internet yeah huge resource for educating people for bringing people on board having discussions um but i think you know having a back and forth of uh you know with most of these crude like Mm. arguments are just like oh you have a penis oh dust your mat like you know (laughs) it's just like it's not even worth debating people who have no respect for your existence um and i think educate the people who want to be educated but don't waste your time i wouldn't waste my time anymore on like online debating Mm. um and i think there's also a difference between what are you debating if it's like some of the events here have been clearly more like here being edinburgh have been clearly more about whether trans women should count as women that's what it all comes down Mm. to right often the hate that being simplified terps are like no it's not just about our trans women and women but it usually is um we can have debates about gender what it means or we can have debates about the best way to measure something is it about what body you have for some forms of health care yeah you need to know how many services there are in the country maybe for that so how do you ask that you know you have debates over what like whether we then just ask people whether they have services we ask people whether they're discriminated against as women like that's a debate area you could have, um, but most of the coding that people use for debate isn't an actual debate. It's giving 
equal platform to a small group of like you know discriminatory horrible transphobes and saying that they count as the women's voice uh, and then giving an equal voice to people who have fought for decades just for basic liberal rights of trans people um and so yeah i think the kind of debate idea comes into trouble in that sense of you can have discussions over how to implement things but there are some things i don't think that need further uh, conversation, which is whether trans people should be able to identify and know themselves better Mm -hmm. than doctors do. Yeah. So before we bring this to a a wee close, could you maybe talk about uh, perhaps an easy thing um, for people who want to be a better ally for Mm -hmm. trans friends, family, people that they engage with, um, like a simple thing that they could do um, currently Mm -hmm. um, that might help to improve either something um, on like a policy level or just everyday life differences within their lives? Yeah, I mean, there's the Equal Recognition Campaign is the kind of campaign around the Gender Recognition Act reform. Um, So you can find out what they're doing. So the Scottish Trans Alliance does a lot of that work. And essentially, like, the government has said they are pausing on their updates of reform until they have another consultation. Right. Um, and hopefully by the end of this year, we'll have a kind of bill brought to Parliament. But that's, that other consultation will need a lot of people to write in and say what their points of view are. So that's, like, a very tangible way to engage. Um, and I also think, if I can be sneaky and say, too... Like, so much of the debate has become about this policy or about law or about the state's power to define our genders. Um, So I guess a less tangible thing is to start questioning why we need to know genders, how we know what genders are, and whether, like, the state needs to be in the business of defining us at all. Right. And kind of querying the ideas that we have about what trans people need. I mean, we just sometimes trans people just need to not be attacked or they need to get money so they can live or they need jobs if you can employ people you know get to the real nitty-gritty day-to-day lives of trans people and figure out how you could help with that yeah wow there's a lot to digest there (laughs) i say not the same as when I was punched in the old days it was enough the card games and ease with the bitter soul of blood I was in but I want out my mother's love is choking me I'm sick of words that hang above my head what about the kid it's time to kick off free so. I I know my plus. Do you want me to go? Yeah, yeah. sure. Go for yeah. it. So my my plus this week and today is li- literally so simple. I just had a really really good slice of cake today. That's what oh, it is. Yeah. Really brilliant. Really brilliant cakes. All I can say. Amazing. It was amazing for the pastry section in in Stockbridge, and it was very very mm. good. My plug kind of following on from um, what you talked about, Kai, was that is literally just the Scottish Trans Alliance, yeah. and to like their Facebook page, which I'll put a link to in the description of this episode. Um, because they are constantly um, putting out content that just gives really simple and helpful ways yeah. to um, engage with trans people in and around Scotland to be supportive and to help shape things going forward. And they also have started to offer really brilliant training and skill workshops for people that want to be involved in activism. And it's a really good way to get involved in activism. Mm-hmm. That's my plug. Good one. So my plus for this week, I think, is my cousin who listens to our podcast 
in the homophobic country of Poland. Yes. And I didn't even have to, like, get her to listen to it. She just saw it on my on my Instagram. That's really annoying, because I've had to make all of my friends listen to it. See, same, exactly. <laughs> but she's literally the only person who texted me and was like, oh my gosh, I listened to your podcast. Shout Speak out to up. cousins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, hi, cousin. I hope you're listening to this one as well. <laughs> Shout out to her. She also has a little baby. So, honestly, that's like... Aww. That's that she's obviously very. She's gonna busy. bring up a new generation of yeah of queers. Cool yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna convert your kid. <laughs> um, my plug, I think, would be the Teaching Matters platform because they're pretty cool. Honestly, they're not they're not like a queer thing, but you know, if you have any any queries about uh, about uni about what. Mm about, I don't know, lecture recording or well-being or anything like that. Um, they've got you covered. They've got pretty cool shit on there. And if you want to write for them, if you want to make uni life easier mm. for anyone, I guess, you can you can do that. I've um, also written a blog for them, so that's a plug. Yeah. Yeah, and a uh, podcast. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. Look, at, look at her over there. <laughs> uh, so I guess for me, my plus is that I submitted my master's dissertation oh, yes so I congrats hopefully passed and finished that degree uh which would be great amazing. um and then my plug is a brilliant other podcast um it's called one from the vaults um so it's by morgan m page who's i'm very lucky to have as a good friend of mine um and who does brilliant podcasts looking at people in trans history um because there are far more people than just those at stonewall who've mm-hmm. been involved i feel like people just kind of know marsha p johnson um it's good to kind of know some more folks um, and from different countries as well and different eras. Um, so I would highly recommend checking out on SoundCloud um, and having a listen. Oh, yeah, cool. we'll link them in the description. Yeah, we'll put all the info. Yeah, yeah, easy access. We're going to do the same thing we did last time. Um, one, two, three. Bye. Trans rights are human rights. Snake out.